from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today is an all-OSU graduate student show with OSU student Bria Heidelberg interviewing Margaret George, author of the historical fiction novel Elizabeth I. OSU student Derek Palacio reviewing Daniel Evans's Before You Drown Your Own Fool Self. And yours truly interviewing a former OSU graduate student and current librarian for the NFL, Chris Willis, about his latest book on Joe F. Carr, The Man Who Built the NFL. So stay tuned for the most OSU students packed into any radio broadcast on the dial. Hello, Margaret. Yes, hello. How are you? Fine. How are you? Oh, good. My name is Bria Heidelberg. I'm a PhD student in arts policy at OSU. I've just been chosen to do this because it turns out I was a fan before I knew that this interview was even supposed to happen. I saw Doug with one of your books and I said, oh my gosh, I've read Helen of Troy and Mary Magdalene and Memoirs of Cleopatra, which was my favorite. And so he invited me to do this. So it's truly an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to start off by asking you what prompted you to double major in biological science and English lit? One was practical and the other was for fun. That is, I was very good in science, um, except math. I'm not very good in, so- in math. And so when I was going to college, my mother said, you know, you really better stick with science. That's where the money is and that's where the jobs are. And if you want to major in English, that's very nice, but you should just do that for yourself. So really, that's why I did it. Then um, she was right. The two majors had nothing to do with each other. Usually there's some kind of a crossover. But the science has really stood me in good stead because it really taught me how to organize material uh, for the kind of work that I do. So my mother's advice was probably good advice, and I followed it. (laughs) (laughs) And do you subscribe to the notion that it takes two different brains to function in the science realm and in the arts realm? Well, maybe in the sense that, as I said, mine does not extend into into the mathematical and that sort of realm. So I think that the kind of science I do is more because it's the whole animal. It was like animal behavior and ecology and those things. Those are more on the writing side anyway. I think that the other side of my brain is not really well developed. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. On your webpage, it says that you gravitate towards characters that have been misunderstood, but how do you actually choose from the wide range of people that have been misunderstood throughout history. <laughs> well, in addition to that, I think I, I want to uh, write about characters that are truly larger than life, that are very operatic, that led these operatic lives, and they they seem almost not real except they were real. And maybe it's because I like living two different kind of lives, and I'm and I tend to be. Well, probably Elizabeth is the closest in character to me because she was cautious and, you know, and, and thrifty and all that. But the ones that I choose generally are the opposite of what I'm like. So maybe it's a way of living vicariously. Okay. Um, your books are written from the perspective, or they seem to be written from the perspective of setting the record straight. And how do you know when you've accomplished this? Well, I think I'm trying for two for two areas. That is, I'm trying to get sympathy for the character, and you have to do that through fictional devices, not really with the record of what they did, because um, you know you don't really get a reader identification with somebody just on the basis of their deeds. 
Uh, and then I do try to cover, I, I never try to cover up what they've actually done. In fact, my first editor said, you have to have all the executions in with Henry VIII, because otherwise people would just say you're whitewashing him. No wonder he was likable. <laughs> but try to either minimize them or give an explanation for them. For example, and, and some things are out of uh fashion today, and you cannot make anybody sympathetic that does these things. For example, apparently Elizabeth really enjoyed bear baiting, but bear baiting is so horrible to us that it would be hard to make a character very sympathetic that enjoyed it. So I just didn't have the bear baiting in there because it really wasn't necessary for the story. So I do pick and choose what I put in as much as I can, but major things like executions, I can hardly leave them out. (laughs) Right. Um, So I know that you don't change any historical facts. You did just mention that you omit some where you can. Um, But are there limitations to what you will and won't do as far as the character's motivations or the rationale behind their actions? Well, I think that you have to work within the time frame these people lived in. And one of the things about in Henry VIII's day, they truly did believe in witchcraft. And when Henry convinced himself that Anne Boleyn was a witch, and he had all these reasons why, all these earmarks of, of her of her sorcery and, and, and her trafficking with the Dark One, uh, some readers have said, well, this is just not fair, and you're being unfair to witches, and, and, um, and anyway, we know it was all trumped up. But I think you, you can't go beyond what people believed in those days. I mean, he did believe this. Actually, a lot of people, I think, still believe in demons and so on. But but that's hard when people now would say, well, we know that wasn't true. So it, it's difficult to convince the reader that at the time when the character believed that, he really wasn't just putting it on. Um, now, maybe, you know, as we all we all seek for justifications and excuses and so on, we choose the ones we want and surely... He did that, but I think that's hard to do um, convincingly, and that's been a problem with some of these characters. Okay. Uh, What other genres have you written in? Well, I started out writing as a a young child, like a lot of people, and, and like a lot of people, I wrote what I was reading at the time, which was horse books. So I wrote a lot of horse books when I was like eight, nine, ten. I even named one of the um, books after a color crayon I had on my desk at the time called Indian Red. And I thought, oh, that's a great name for a horse. So I named my horse that. And then I, I graduated. I did some science fiction stories because I was very – I liked science fiction. I loved Ray Bradbury and the Martian Chronicles. So I wrote things like that. And then when I got older, I wrote – you know, teenage kind of things, which I'm kind of embarrassed. I don't think I've reread them since. <laughs> and then I like, you know, I still do like adventure stories. And like, I really like The Lost City of Z, that book recently. And I did a kind of an adventure story about people that were shipwrecked on an island off the coast of Brazil. And it had anacondas and exploding volcanoes and all kinds of things like that. I like that book very much. Um, and I never published it, although uh, actually my editor and my agent read it, and they, they pronounced it very, very entertaining, but they didn't think it would do a lot for my literary career. So um, I kind of settled on this almost as an accident because I, I didn't foresee doing character after character. What I thought I would do, I wanted to do a psychobiography of Henry VIII, and I thought of it as a kind of standalone thing, you know, like the Brazilian island with the 
volcanoes. And then what happens is people say, well, who are you going to do next? Who are you going to do next? And suddenly, before you realize it, you have found your niche. Now it's hard to think about doing something else. I mean, I, I think about doing other things, but I can't um, think of any genre that would particularly suit me as well. Okay. What other authors have influenced you? I know you mentioned Ray Bradbury a lot, but are there any others? Well, I guess F. Scott Fitzgerald, because of all the yearning in his works, and um, someone said there's a lot of that in mine. There's a lot of there's a lot of looking back and regrets and imagining how things might have been different and so on. And he's such a master of that. Also, I like his sensual details. I mean, he's very, very sensual. I don't mean sexual, but of the senses and uses language so beautifully. Um, let's see. Edgar Allan Poe, of course, um, although nobody can write like Poe, but, but he certainly has a beautiful way with words. And let me A.E. Houseman, the poet A.E. Houseman, uh, who I grew up reading, and I read something recently about he's little red today. I don't know why he would be little red today, but he was very influential. He has an almost Roman sort of stoicism in his works. But again, it's often about lost regrets and so on. So this is the the happy land of lost content and highways where I cannot walk again, you know, that sort of thing. I guess it really appeals to me. <laughs> okay. What's the last book that you read? And I use the term book very loosely. It can be something that you read in the grocery store line as well. Well, I'm actually in the middle of the Paris wife because I'm going to Paris in uh, June. And also I just finished on my book tour uh, my escort took me to Oak Park, which I had never been to outside of Chicago, even though I lived nearby. And I visited the Hemingway House and also the Frank Lloyd Wright studio. So I thought, you know, as I'm going to Paris, um, and I don't know that much about Hemingway's personal life. So I got that book, and I'm I'm about a third of the way through, I guess. Um, well, that's what I'm reading right now. I try to always be reading, reading something uh, I started reading Cutting for Stone, and I took that with me on a trip. And I do have to say I got kind of bogged down in it, and I, I've switched over to the Paris wife temporarily. You've been touted as someone that has a meticulous research process. Can you briefly describe that process, or does it change with each character? No, it's exactly the same. I guess I'm a creature of habit, and it does go back to my scientific training and background. And that is when I started to write got the idea about writing about Henry VIII. Having worked, I actually worked for the Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland for several years, and I was so aware of all the quack messages, especially swirls around cancer, and one of the pamphlets I had to write was, you know, stopping the cancer quacks. And so I was aware that in history there are a lot of quacks also. I mean, that the shelves are filled with, with books about the Tudors, but not all of them are very authoritative or good and I shouldn't be misled by them any more than the quack treatments. So I went to a professor at University of at uh, Washington University because I was living in St. Louis at the time, and I told him about my project, and he gave me a reading list. And he said, "These are the classics in the field. Uh, they're all available, and if you learn everything in these, you will be you'll know just about everything you need to know." And so I went out and dutifully bought all of them, and read them. And of course, they had bibliographies, which would lead me to other books. But I had a great foundation that way. 
And so then I would transfer the information into notebooks and note cards and so on. And then after I really pretty much mastered all that, uh, then I go to the places and try to see as much as I can of where the character lived, walked, um, and spent his or her time. If there are artifacts in the museum that they owned, that so much the better because it's something they touched and felt. And so that's my process. And then after all that is all over, then I will start writing. So that's why I try to break it in half where I Whatever time I have, I have to stop researching about halfway through or I won't have time to do the writing. You noted that you feel emotionally tied to your characters. Is this solely from a place of sympathy or do you personally identify with them? I know you briefly mentioned identifying with Elizabeth. Well, I think both. I mean, I think that um, as I get to know them better, I identify with them. And I don't think I could write about them if I didn't find traits in common that, that I share with them, because otherwise I couldn't imagine how they feel about things. But um, I think I also maybe identify with their positions or, or the situations that they're in and sympathize with it. I mean, you know, as much as they had enviable lives, in lots of ways they had obviously troubles to surmount surmount and overcome or they wouldn't be sympathetic so and but i think you can i go for what it is that's going to make them understandable and sympathetic to a reader for example you know henry viii's wretched childhood (laughs) Um, if you can build up a lot of sympathy for a character when they're young that that takes you a long way into their adulthood when maybe they start acting not quite so sympathetically but Elizabeth is probably the most like me, um, kind of cautious and, and, and um, keeps her thoughts to herself. And um, I really admired Cleopatra. She was difficult to write about because she didn't have very many human flaws. You know, it's always easy to make somebody likable if they have some weak spot. But, you know, probably of all the characters, she was the most uh, accomplished. I mean, and so self-confident that that didn't have a chink in her armor anywhere. On your website, it's noted that because of your strict research rules for yourself, that your choices are some of subject are somewhat limited. Um, but if you could write about any person with the assurance that you would have access to all the information you would need, who would you write about? Oh, hmm. Oh, that's a hard one. Um. Well, um, probably some biblical character that we don't know a lot about because it's so lost in time, like, you know, um, Leah, who was Jacob's unloved wife. I always felt bad about her because, you know, it's to be the to be the wife that the husband doesn't really want. And yet they had all those children. So there has to be a story there. But I do wonder, you know, some of those Bible characters, um, we know so little about them including whether they ever even existed. But but if we could find out more, I'd, I'd, I'd like that. Okay. Have you decided who you'll write about next? Well, I have a very exciting uh, idea for a dual sort of novel in which I, w- I would be writing about Boudicca, who is the uh, Celtic warrior queen of of. Britain in a certain part of Britain in the about uh, in the early first century who tried to kick the Romans out. They hadn't really gotten their foothold firmly into England at that point, And she led a great uprising and almost got got them out. And then her adversary, who was emperor at the time, was the emperor Nero. So I think those two 
personalities. They're very outsized. And um, interesting, because I don't know um, that much about that time in England. I mean, it's, it's, it's an early part of English history. It's a different part of the country than I've, I've been in before. So I always like a challenge of a new, a new area and a new person. And, of course, Nero is just, you know, he's, he's Hollywood's favorite emperor. And I think he was more sympathetic than he's portrayed to be because he actually was very artistic. And there's a new exhibit in, in Rome that I'm hoping to go to that apparently shows the other side of Nero. So um, I think that will be a fun project. And the fact that you sort of gravitated towards women, is that just circumstance or is it a, is it a purposeful choice? I think it's circumstance, really. I mean, I have proposed some men. The publisher wasn't very excited about them. I really originally wanted to do a novel about Judas, and they were horrified. That was a long <laughs> time ago. I think now, of course, people would want a novel about Judas. And, um, you know, there are a lot of interesting men. I said I think Nero is interesting. So it's really been kind of happenstance. Maybe the women have had some very good roles that called out to me and Again, I think Boudicca is interesting. She's a big national heroine in England. There's a big statue of her right near the Houses of Parliament. Is there anything you would like to tell people that you'd never get asked about? <laughs> I don't know. I would like to say about my Elizabeth book is that, that I um, have covered the last part of her reign, not the first part. The last part people tend to overlook because they like to end the story with the Armada. But the last 15 years are really fascinating, and they they have um, some of the most exciting things. And also what we think of as the Elizabethan Golden Age with Shakespeare, who didn't even come to London till the Armada. You've got the Armada, and then you've got her facing all the questions of aging and how to pass the crown on and all those things, which are kind of modern concerns, really. Uh, and and her and whether Parliament uh, is going to get the upper hand. Someone said that part of her reign is like the film noir of the Elizabethan age, and I think I think it is. So I think I've done some something a little different in Elizabeth, and I hope that people would um, be able to read it and enjoy it. Great. Well, thank you very much for taking the time out to speak to me today. I do appreciate it. Well, thank you for reading my books, and I'm glad you enjoy them so much. For links to some of the books of Margaret George, visit www.writerstalk.org. OSU student Derek Palacio is in his second year in creative writing at Ohio State, and he professes his love for writing and for giving his opinion. Here it is for Before You Drown Your Own Fool Self. Salman Rushdie chose Danielle Evans' short story, Virgins, for the 2008 edition of Best American Short Stories. But after finishing her debut collection, Before You Drown Your Own Fool Self, I am more enamored with the book's second story, Snakes. Set at a white, wooden, old southern masterpiece in Tallahassee, Florida, Snakes sinisterly reunites the nine-year-old adopted black Tara with her estranged, prejudiced white grandmother, Marianne, for one fateful summer. Evans aims to explore the volatile relationship between racism and the generations, and her success, and I think she is successful, hinges upon the even tone of her adult narrator, an older Tara looking back. That tone refuses to editorialize the past, to obscure Tara's memory with lessons learned, and instead it sticks to the objective truth. It relays in precise detail the events of those hot Florida months spent with Grandmother, and Evanson's adherence to fact allows for the marvelous turn in Tara's character at the story's end. 
readers are left satisfied, not because the ultimate confession demystifies the ambiguity of the story's climactic event, but because the final revelation is one of character. Evans's last move is to pull Terra apart completely, and the audience is rewarded with a complex, complicated human being, rather than a static survivor of unfortunate summer tragedy. Evans's stories shine when they explore these kinds of characters, individuals, generally young girls, who, when pushed, engage in the dark business of making destructive choices. A teenage girl forsaking her virginity, a high school valedictorian setting fire to school grounds, and a young woman checking up on an engaged ex-boyfriend round out Evans's cast of strong, precocious female leads. These are characters who ignore the advice of loved ones and are not careful with themselves. Theirs is a dangerous world where men, cultural norms, and lingering racism are powerful and highly palpable threats. That is not to say, however, that these women don't foresee the consequences of their actions. Rather, they know how badly and who their choices will hurt. Crystal, in Evans's story, Robert E. Lee is Dead, understands full well that fleeing the fire she started will ruin any future her high school best friend, Gina, has left. Carla, the protagonist of Wherever You Go, There You Are, ignores the danger she puts her cousin into when she drags the underage Chrissy to an ex-boyfriend's gig at a seedy bar in North Carolina. And Angel, a college student unexpectedly pregnant, cannot and does not ignore the absurdity of asking her white roommate for help getting an abortion, the same roommate who has been selling her unfertilized eggs for extra spending cash. Evans, as Lydia Peel notes, enjoys contrasts, and her use of opposites, White and black, rough and refined, old and young, complicates further already tenuous situations. They make beautiful irony out of nicely rendered, realist tension, and Evans handles these layered conflicts with ease. Only when simplifying a character or situation does this collection stumble. Someone ought to tell her there's nowhere to go depicts the psychological unraveling of a recent war veteran. But because the link between events abroad and George's behavior at home is so obvious, the story tends to diminish in scope rather than expand. That oversimplification sometimes permeates Evans's writing as well as her plot lines. At the end of Robert E. Lee is Dead, and despite the complex truths an audience will certainly understand, Evans's finishes with the line, I stopped to catch my breath, and then kept running, knowing even then that a better person would have turned around. Is that really all the narrator can make of the situation, of abandoning her best friend? I think not, and nor does Evans is my guess. Yet one can and should ignore those minor issues simply because such revelations come from the perspective of young women learning the world is more intricate and complicated than they ever imagined. Though the wisdom they espouse is nothing new, it is the acquisition and apprehension of such transient truth that Evans wants us to witness, and in that regard she is exceptionally capable. Before you drown your own fool self is perhaps, above all else, about the fleeting moment of insights characters experience before they slip underwater. Their eyes open momentarily, they see a flicker of light, and they comprehend, however briefly, their particular circumstance. And then they drown. I am talking to Chris Willis. Welcome. Thanks, Doug. Thanks for having me. Tell me about Joe F. Carr. Well, first, uh, being in Columbus, uh, he was a Columbus native. He was oh. born here, uh, you know, lived here his entire life. 
Uh, so he actually got started in sports as a sports writer. He worked for the old Ohio State Journal, you know, uh, well known for his boxing stories uh, back in the day. Uh, he was also a baseball executive with the Columbus Senators, a basketball executive. Uh, he was the team manager with the Columbus Panhandles, which was the local Pro football the team. Columbus what? Panhandles. Panhandles? Yes. Were they that poorly paid at the well, time that they would be the Panhandles? Not quite that, you know, <laughs> connotation. It was they were railroad workers on the Panhandle division of the Pennsylvania Railroad. Ah. So they weren't actually asking for handouts. Okay. They weren't in the Panhandle division. Uh, they were railroad workers. Uh, Joe Carr did do a little bit as a machinist when he was like 13, 14, 15 years old. Mm -hmm. That's how he got to know some of these uh, rough and tough uh, railroad workers. And that's how they started the team. They used their free perks for the railroads to be able to travel and play the Camp Bulldogs, oh, okay. the and Tigers, you know, some of the early, you know, pretty good pro teams. So that's how Joe Carr sort of got the sports bug, you know, mm -hmm. and, you know, here in Columbus. And uh, when the NFL was founded in 1920, they elected Jim Thorpe as the president of the NFL. But mm -hmm. he was an athlete. He was a really, you know, superstar athlete uh, where Joe Carr was more of a business executive, sports mm -hmm. executive. So the following year, 1921, he was elected president of what would become the NFL. Okay. So how did they build the NFL? What was your research suggesting about the creation of the NFL? Okay. Um, the reason why I use that was because I think he's not known for you know being this person behind the scenes. He was president of the NFL. He, uh, with along with some of the owners like George Howes, people assume like George Howes built it or some of these owners, but he was the president, you know, and one of the main things he did was he recruited financially capable owners to run teams. You know, a lot of early pro teams would play for a year or two, run out of money because they couldn't play, you know, mm -hmm. college stars or players, and then they, the team would just fold. Well, when Joe Carr became president, he's like, in order for the, you know, football, pro football to be a viable business, they needed financially capable owners to run teams and they were in, he wanted them in the big city so he recruited mm -hmm. like tim mayor the mayor family who still owns the new york giants he recruited art rooney who still the rooney family still owns the pittsburgh steelers uh burt bell who ran the philadelphia eagles you know the detroit lions like all these teams that are now the sort of foundation of the nfl mm -hmm. he sort of recruited these owners so that's why i think he was sort of on that ground or the foundation of building okay. the national football league okay so he would not who's the guy you'll help me out here um getting divorced and was using his team for collateral he's in the nfl you know who i'm talking about who's getting divorced i thought you meant the uh, dodgers owner uh, maybe that's frank mccord yes, yeah 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 yes yeah, so the mccord family so, so he wouldn't have yeah uh, he, he wouldn't would have, have been recruited high, him no no <laughs> So what were the things that surprised you as you were writing the book um, when you, you know, you started off with, okay, this is maybe my notion of what the NFL was like when it was created, and this is the reality? Well, I think the one thing that uh, surprised me or that I really liked, especially about Carr himself, was his passion for the sport. You know, mm -hmm. at the beginning of the 20s, pro football was probably 10th on the list, probably just behind Pro wrestling, <laughs> you know, yeah. like baseball, golf, boxing. Golf was oh yeah, even uh, golf was was a more established and right. well. Oh well, if you're Bobby Jones, you're a golfer. You're much, you know, you're much established. Mm -hmm. uh, but he just had the passion. He could see that, you know, pro football, you know, had a spot in the sports realm. Mm -hmm. uh, you know that it, it had a future. And uh, some of the quotes in like the newspapers where he said, you know, oh, the sports are going to have dome stadiums. Uh, it, it, it's going to be bigger than baseball, you know. You know the championship game which he created was going to be one of the big sporting events of the so year. So he created the Super Bowl. What the precursor? precursor what would to be the, the Super Bowl? Yes, okay. you know. So these things all along, which were you know 
not heard of or like, oh, the sport's never going to become that popular. He always had that passion. You saw it in, in the newspaper quotes, which is throughout the book, is he's, he kept promoting and it's going to be bigger than baseball. Watch, just wait. We're, we're, you know, we're keeping it on course. We're, you know, we're going in the proper direction. And, mm-hmm. you know, things like the draft, you know, player contracts, you know, where a player wouldn't have to hop from a team, to, you know, team to team within the same season. They used to right. do that even before, you know, player con. So he established all these things that actually the NFL sits on now. So mm-hmm. that kind of surprised me, you know, the passion he had for a sport that really wasn't as popular as he, you know, he might have perceived. So there, you need somebody like that for soccer, say, mm-hmm. to to change it from what it yes. is now. Yes, you know, somebody like or you know, the people behind NASCARs, you know. Although NASCAR is, yeah, huge. You know, like, you know, some of those people thought, oh, it can be a viable sport on TV, which nobody thought it could be. Now it is, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's had a little trouble lately. But those are what you need. You need somebody to think outside of the box and beyond of what the sport is at that current spot. Where did you go for the research? Uh, where can you I did uh, several trips. One, a lot back to Columbus here. Uh, this mm-hmm. is my hometown. So I was able to come back and do a lot of uh, research on microfilm, you know, all the old newspapers, the High State Journal, the old Columbus Dispatch, the Columbus Citizen Journal, you know, mm-hmm. the early newspapers. Uh, and I did interviews with the family. I was able to, to get a really good relationship with the grandsons of Joe Carr, who still live in Columbus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, family interviews, you know, uh, and, and family information and photos and, and things like that. You know, like even the cover is a family photo of his headshot, you know, mm-hmm. which I thought was one of the best photos I've seen of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so you, know, you start with the research, you know, uh, with the families and the interviews and, like I said, microfilm. But a lot of it was here in Columbus. I did interview some of the early owners, you know, within the NFL. And they're still alive. So well, they were, some of them are. You know, some of the families, yep. like like I said, the mayor and Rooney families are still alive. They were able to, to give me some information and, and, mm-hmm. and some and some insight into him, you know, as their dad was dealing with him and things like that. So, uh, so it was a combination of interviews, microfilm research, newspaper research and then you know you know some books and things to fill in the gap i thank you very much chris willis thanks for having for for being here on writer's talk for more from chris willis margaret george or derek palacio our guest today visit www.writerstalk.org join us next time for more authors from the ohio anna book festival until then this is doug dagner from ohio state keep writing